This is an audio abridgment of What Do We Owe to the Reformation, a church association tracked by 19th century bishop J.C. Ryle. The full version can be found in the book Distinctive Principles for Anglican Evangelicals, edited by Lee Gatiss and published by Church Society. It is read by Lee Gatiss. Our lot is cast in days when it is the fashion to despise everything that is old. There is a morbid readiness to throw aside all things which bear about them the least mark of antiquity, and to treat them with as little respect as last year's almanacs or worn-out clothes. The only exceptions I can think of are old lace, old coins, old pictures and old wine. But as a general rule, old opinions and old institutions are too often condemned as useless lumber and shoveled out of the way simply because they are old. But there is one subject about which I cannot take up new views, and that subject is the English Reformation. I cannot agree with those who now tell us that the Reformation was a blunder, that the reformers are overpraised, that Protestantism has done this country no good, and that it would matter little if England placed her neck once more under the foot of the Pope of Rome. Against these new-fangled opinions I enter my solemn protest. I want no departure from the old Protestant paths which were cast up by Cranmer, Ridley and Latimer 300 years ago. In short, about the value of the English Reformation, I want no new views. I unhesitatingly maintain that the old are better. The subject of this paper may seem a very simple one, but I fear there is a strange amount of ignorance about it and a widely spread disposition to undervalue the Protestant Reformation. Time has a wonderful power of dimming men's eyes and deadening their recollection of benefits and making them thankless and ungrateful. Partly, too, from a cowardly dislike of religious controversy, partly from a secret desire to appear liberal and condemn nobody's opinions, the Reformation period of English history is sadly slurred over, both in universities and our schools. It seems an inconvenient subject, and people give it the cold shoulder. To remove some of this ignorance and let in a little light, it is the simple aim of this paper. I want to make sure some of my countrymen understand that we owe an enormous debt to the Protestant Reformation. Let me clear the way by saying that I do not pretend to endorse the character of all the agents by whom the English Reformation was carried out, or to approve of everything which they did. I do not for a moment maintain that Henry VIII was a godly man. No, too often he was a brutal tyrant. I do not say that the statesmen who surrounded him were faultless characters. Far from it. Too many of them made a market of the Reformation and enriched their families by plundering abbey lands. I do not ask you to believe that Cranmer and the other reformers, either in the days of Henry VIII or Edward VI or Elizabeth, were angels and made no mistakes. I frankly admit that they did some things which they ought not to have done, and left undone 
some things which they ought to have done. All I do maintain is that the whole result of the Protestant Reformation was an enormous gain to this country, and I confidently assert that England before the Reformation was as unlike England after the Reformation as black and white, darkness and light, night and day. Facts, stubborn facts, exist to prove the correctness of this assertion, and some of those facts I shall try to bring before you. I begin by saying that the Reformation delivered England from an immense quantity of evils. In describing those evils, it is hard to know where to begin and where to leave off. Their number is legion. The utmost I can do is to give you a short summary of them and ask you to believe that the half is left untold. For one thing, the Reformation delivered England from gross religious ignorance and a spiritual darkness that might be felt. No doubt there was a professing Church of Christ in the land when Henry VIII ascended the throne, a church abounding in wealth and garrisoned by a whole army of bishops, abbots, friars, priests, monks and nuns. But money and clergymen do not make a Church of Christ any more than men with muskets make up an army. For any useful and soul-saving purposes, the English church was practically dead. And if St Paul had come out of his grave and visited it, I doubt if he would have called it a church at all. The plain truth is that it was a church without a Bible, and such a church is as useless as a lighthouse without a light, a candlestick without a candle, or a steam engine without a fire. Except a few scattered copies of Wycliffe's translation of the Vulgate, there were no English Bibles in the land, and the natural consequence was that priests and people knew scarcely anything about God's truth and the way to be saved. As to the clergy, as a general rule, their religion was the merest form and scarcely deserved to be called Christianity at all. The immense majority of the clergy did little more than say masses and offer up pretended sacrifices, repeat Latin prayers and chant Latin hymns, which of course the people could not understand, hear confessions, grant absolutions, give extreme unction and take money to get dead people out of purgatory. Preaching was utterly at a discount. As Bishop Latimer truly remarked, when the devil gets influence in a church, up go candles and down goes preaching. Quarterly sermons were indeed prescribed to the clergy, but not insisted on. Latimer says that while mass was never to be left unsaid for a single Sunday, sermons might be omitted for 20 Sundays in succession and nobody was blamed. After all, when sermons were preached, they were utterly unprofitable, and latterly to preach much was to incur the suspicion of being a heretic. To cap all, the return that Bishop Hooper got from the rich Diocese of Gloucester, no barbarous and uncivilised corner of England, when he was first appointed bishop in 1551, will give you a pretty clear idea of the ignorance of pre-Reformation times. He found 
that out of 311 clergy in his diocese, 168 were unable to repeat the Ten Commandments. 31 of the 168 could not say in what part of Scripture they were to be found. 40 could not tell where the Lord's Prayer was written. And 31 of the 40 did not know who was the author of the Lord's Prayer. As to the laity, it is not too much to say that the bulk of them, except in the hour of trial, sickness and death, had no religion at all. Even at such seasons as those, there was no one to tell them of the love of God, the mediation of Christ, the glad tiding of free salvation, the precious blood of atonement and justification by faith. They could only send for the priest, who knew nothing himself and could tell nothing to others, and then at last they received absolution and extreme unction and took a leap in the dark. The blind led the blind and both fell into a ditch. To sum up all in a few words, the religion of our English forefathers before the Reformation was a religion without knowledge, without faith and without lively hope. A religion without justification, regeneration and sanctification. A religion without any clear views of Christ or the Holy Ghost. Except in rare instances, it was little better than an organised system of Mary worship, saint worship, image worship, relic worship, pilgrimages, almsgivings, formalism, ceremonialism, processions, prostrations, bowings, crossings, fastings, confessions, penances, absolutions, masses and blind obedience to the priests. It was a huge higgledy-piggledy of ignorance and idolatry and serving an unknown God by deputy. The only practical result was that the priests took the people's money and undertook to secure their salvation, and the people flattered themselves that the more they gave to the priests, the more sure they were to go to heaven. As to the grand cardinal question, what must I do to be saved? Probably not one Englishman in fifty could have given you half as good an answer as any ordinary Sunday school child would give in our own day. Such was the ignorance which was scattered to the winds by the English Reformation. Mind, you do not forget it. For another thing, the Reformation delivered England from the most grovelling, childish and superstitious practices in religion. I allude especially to the worship of relics. Destitute of the slightest scriptural knowledge, our forefathers were taught by the priests to seek spiritual benefit from the so-called relics of dead saints and to treat them with divine honour. The accounts which those trustworthy old historians Stripe and Fuller and Burnett have handed down to us about these wretched relics up to the middle of Henry VIII's reign are so extraordinary that you ought to hear some of them. At Reading Abbey in Berkshire, within a mile of the present station of the Great Western Railway, the following things, amongst many others, were exhibited by the monks on great occasions, and most religiously honoured by the people. An angel with one wing, 
the spearhead which pierced our Saviour's side, two pieces of the Holy Cross, St James's hand, St Philip's stole, a bone of Mary Magdalene and a bone of Salome. At Bury St Edmunds in Suffolk, the priests exhibited the coals that roasted St Lawrence, the pairings of St Edmund's toenails, Thomas a Becket's penknife and boots, and as many pieces of our Saviour's cross as would have made, if joined together, one large whole cross. They had also relics whose help was invoked at times when there was an excessive growth of weeds or an unusually heavy fall of rain. At Maiden Bradley Priory in Somerset, the worshippers were privileged to see the Virgin Mary's smock, a piece of the stone upon which our Lord was born at Bethlehem, and part of the bread used by Christ and the Apostles at the first Lord's Supper. At Bruton Priory in Somerset was kept a girdle of the Virgin Mary made of red silk. This solemn relic was lent as a special favour to women in childbirth to ensure them a safe delivery. The like was done with a white girdle of Mary Magdalene kept at Farley Abbey in Wiltshire. In neither case, we may be sure, was the relic sent without a pecuniary consideration. Even in the Midland counties, I'm sorry to say, superstition was as bad as in the south of England. Stripe records that at St Mary's Nunnery in Derby, the nuns had a piece of St Thomas's shirt and that it was worshipped by women expecting their confinement. At Dale Abbey, near Derby, they worshipped part of the girdle of the Virgin Mary and some of her milk. At Repton Monastery, the bell of St Guthlac was held in special honour, and people put their heads under it to cure their headache. At Grace Dieu Nunnery in Leicestershire, they worshipped the girdle and part of the coat of St Francis. Records like these are so amazingly silly, as well as painful, that one hardly knows whether to laugh or to cry over them. But it is positively necessary to bring them forward, in order that people may know what was the religion of our forefathers in the days when Rome ruled the land, before the Reformation. Wonderful as these things may seem, we must never forget that Englishmen at the time had no Bibles, and knew no better. A famishing man, in sieges and blockades, has been known to eat rats and mice and all manner of garbage, rather than die of hunger. A conscience-stricken soul, famishing for lack of God's word, must not be judged too hardly if it struggles to find comfort in the most debasing superstition. Only, let us never forget that this was the superstition which was shattered to pieces by the Reformation. Remember that. It was indeed a deliverance. As to the gross and ridiculous impostures which the priests practised on our ignorant forefathers before the Reformation, the catalogue would fill a volume. Of course, I cannot do more than supply a few specimens. At the Abbey of Hales in Gloucestershire, 
a vial was shown by the priests on great occasions to those who offered alms, which was said to contain the blood of Christ. This notable vial was examined by the royal commissioners in Henry VIII's time and was found to contain neither more nor less than the blood of a duck, which was renewed every week. In the city of Worcester, there was a huge image of the Virgin Mary in one of the churches, which was held in special reverence. This also was examined by the same royal commissioners in order to ascertain what it really was. But when it was stripped of certain veils which covered it, it turned out to be no image of the Virgin or any woman at all, but the statue of some old bishop. At Bexley in Kent, a great crucifix was exhibited, which received peculiar honour and large offerings because of a continual miracle which was said to attend its exhibition. When the worshippers before it offered a copper coin, the face of the figure on the cross looked grave. When they offered silver, it relaxed its severity. When they offered gold, it openly smiled. In Henry VIII's time, this famous crucifix also was examined, and wires were found within it, by which the attendant priests could move the face of the image and make it assume any expression that they pleased. All over Europe, things were shown as holy relics, so manifestly false and fictitious that the priests who showed them can only be regarded as cheats and rogues. Wood of the true cross, enough to load a ship, though we know one person alone could carry it. Thorns professing to be part of our Saviour's crown of thorns, enough to make a large bundle. At least fourteen nails said to have been used at the crucifixion, though we know four must have been sufficient. Four spearheads said to be points of the spear which pierced our Lord's side, though of course it only had one. At least three seamless coats of Christ, for which the soldiers cast lots, though there could only have been one. All these are only select specimens of the profane and vile inventions with which Romish priests imposed on people before the Reformation. They must have known that they were telling lies, and yet they persisted in telling them, and requiring the ignorant laity to believe them. Once more I remind you that for deliverance from this miserable system of priestly tyranny and priestly imposition, we are indebted to the Reformation. One more point remains to be mentioned. The Reformation delivered England from the worst plague that can afflict a nation. I mean the plague of extreme unholiness and immorality among the clergy. The lives of the clergy, as a general rule, were simply scandalous, and the moral tone of the laity was naturally at the lowest ebb. Of course, grapes will never grow on thorns, nor figs on thistles. To expect the huge roots of ignorance and superstition which filled our land to bear any but corrupt fruit would be unreasonable and absurd. But a more thoroughly corrupt set 
than the English clergy were in the balmy days of undisturbed Romanism, with a few brilliant exceptions, it would be impossible to imagine. I might tell you of the habits of gluttony, drunkenness and gambling, for which the parochial priesthood became unhappily notorious. I might tell you of the shameless covetousness which marked the pre-Reformation priesthood. So long as a man gave liberal offerings at the shrine of such saints as Thomas a Becket, the clergy would absolve him of almost any sin. So long as a felon or malefactor paid the monks well, he might claim sanctuary within the precincts of religious houses after any crime, and hardly any law could reach him. Yet all this time, for Lollards and Wycliffeites, there was no mercy at all. The very carvings still ex extant in some old ecclesiastical buildings tell a story in stone and wood which speaks volumes to this day. Friars are often represented in these carvings as foxes preaching, with the neck of a stolen goose peeping out of the hood behind, or as wolves giving absolution, with a sheep muffled up in their cloaks, as apes sitting by a sick man's bed with a crucifix in one hand and with the other in the sufferer's pocket. Things must indeed have been at a low ebb when the faults of ordained ministers were so publicly held up to scorn. But the blackest spot on the character of our pre-Reformation clergy in England is one of which it is painful to speak. I mean the impurity of their lives and their horrible contempt of the seventh commandment. The results of auricular confession, carried on by men bound by their vow never to marry, was such that I dare not enter into them. The consequences of shutting up herds of men and women in the prime of life, in monasteries and nunneries, were such that I will not defile my paper by dwelling upon them. Suffice it to say that the discoveries made by Henry VIII's commissioners of the goings-on in many of the so-called religious houses were such as it is impossible to describe. It is a shame even to speak of them. Anything less holy than the practice of many of the holy men and women in these professedly holy retreats from sin and the world, the imagination cannot conceive. If ever there was a plausible theory weighed in the balance and found utterly wanting, it is the favourite theory that celibacy and monasticism promote holiness. Romantic young men and sentimental young ladies may mourn over the ruins of such abbeys as Battle and Glastonbury and Bolton and Kirkstall and Furness and Croyland and Bury and Tinton. But I venture to conjecture that many of these houses are more useful now in their ruined condition than they ever were in their days of affluence and prosperity. I believe, in short, that monasteries and nunneries were frequently sinks of iniquity, and that too often monks and nuns were the scandal of Christianity. I grant freely that all monasteries and nunneries were not equally bad. I admit that there were religious houses, like Godstow Nunnery near Oxford, which had a stainless reputation. But I fear that these were bright exceptions which only proved the rule.
the preamble of the Act of Dissolution of Religious Houses, founded on the reports of Henry VIII's commissioners, contains broad general statements which cannot be got over. It declares that manifest sin, vicious, carnal and abominable living is daily used and committed in abbeys, priories and other religious houses of monks, canons and nuns, and that albeit many continual visitations have been had by the space of 200 years or more for an honest and charitable reformation of such unthrifty, carnal and abominable living, yet that nevertheless little or none amendment was hitherto had, but that their vicious living shamefully increased and augmented. I make no apology for dwelling on these things. Painful and humbling as the picture is, it is one that in these times ought to be carefully looked at and not thrown aside. I do not want people to pass severe judgments on our poor ancestors and say they were all lost. We are not their judge, to whom little light has been given, of them little will be required. But I do want modern churchmen to understand from what the Reformation delivered us. Before we make up our minds to give up Protestantism and receive back monasticism and the Catholic system, let us thoroughly understand what the state of England was when popery had its own way unchecked and uncontrolled. My own belief is that there never was a change so imperatively needed as the Reformation, and that no Englishman ever did such good service to their country as the Reformers. In short, unless a man can disprove the plain historical facts recorded by Stripe and Burnett, he must either admit that the times before the Reformation were bad times, or be content to be regarded as beside himself. To no class of men does England owe such a debt of gratitude as to her Protestant reformers. The second thing which I propose to do is to show you very briefly the positive blessings which the English Reformation conferred upon this country. Hitherto we have only seen the immense evils from which it freed us. Let us now turn the tables and see the immense amount of good which it brought in. You have heard what it was that the Reformation destroyed and shattered to pieces. You shall now hear what it was that the Reformation built up in its place. First and foremost, we owe to the Reformation an English Bible and liberty for every man, woman and child in the land to read it. With an English Bible came in the right and duty of private judgment and the assertion of the great principle of our sixth article, that Holy Scripture contains all things needful to salvation and is the only rule of faith and practice. It is a striking and instructive fact that of all the agencies which combined to win the English Reformation, hardly any called forth such bitter opposition as the translation and circulation of the Scriptures. Even in 1519, long before Cranmer began his good work, Fox records that six men and a woman were burned at Coventry for teaching their children the Lord's Prayer 
and the Ten Commandments. And the charge against the accused persons was not the possession of a Bible, but of an English Bible, or a book of the new law in England. It was this which cost the martyred reformer Tyndale his life. He was burned because he would translate and circulate the scriptures. The relentless enmity with which he was persecuted and finally hunted to death by Sir Thomas More and others tells a tale which he who runs may read. In vain, Bishop Tunstall seized the book and Bishop Bonner burned it at St Paul's Cross. Its leading contents and principles ran through the land like fire and from that period the Pope's cause in England was shaken to the centre. You that read the Bible daily and delight in the law of the Lord, never forget that you owe that Bible to the Reformation. For another thing, we owe to the Reformation an open road to the throne of grace and the great fountain of peace with God. That blessed road had long been blocked up and made impassable by heaps of rubbish of man's invention. Under pretense of mending and improving the road, the divines of Rome had spoiled it altogether. He who desired to obtain forgiveness had to seek it through a jungle of priests, saints, Mary worship, masses, penances, confession, absolution and the like, so that there might as well have been no throne of grace at all. The wells of water which were dug by the apostles were stopped with earth and made practically useless. This huge mass of rubbish was shoveled out of the way by the reformers. The doctrine of our glorious 11th article was everywhere preached, published and proclaimed. People were taught that justification was by faith without the deeds of the law and that every heavy laden sinner on earth had a right to go straight to the Lord Jesus Christ for remission of sins without waiting for pope or priest, confession or absolution, masses or extreme unction. You that are walking by faith and enjoying peace with God by simple trust in the precious blood of atonement, never forget any day that you owe this priceless privilege to the Reformation. For another thing, we owe to the Reformation the true idea of Christian worship. In the days when Romanism ruled England undisturbed, the service of God's house must have been to most Englishmen a mysterious performance, which they left entirely in the hands of the priests. If they were present at any church service, they could only be present as sleeping partners or passive, ignorant spectators. It was a mere formal, histrionic worship, in which the laity could only bring their bodies, but in which their minds and reason and spirit and understanding could take no part at all. This solemn farce was completely stopped by our reformers. They laid down the great principle of our 24th article, that it is a thing plainly repugnant to the word of God and the custom of the primitive church to have public prayer in the church or to minister the sacraments in a tongue not understanded of the people. 
They introduced into every English parish the English Bible, an English prayer book, English preaching, simple plain services and a simple untheatrical administration of Christ's two sacraments. Of course, they could not make the people Christians, but from the Isle of Wight to Berwick-on-Tweed and from Land's End to the North Foreland, a worship was set up in every parish church which the poorest labourer might understand. You that really enjoy the simple service of our liturgy, and when heartily and devoutly performs there is nothing like it, do not forget every Sunday that for this also you are indebted to the Reformation. Such is a brief and condensed account of the positive blessings which the Reformation has conferred upon England. We bask in the full sunshine of them. They are a part of the air we breathe. They are a rich inheritance which every resident in England, unconsciously I fear in many cases, enjoys at this day. Our very familiarity with them is a danger. We have not the smallest idea of the religious blessings we enjoy compared to our ancestors hundreds of years ago. We have neither an adequate conception of the evils from which the Reformation freed us, nor of the immense good which it brought in. But this I am bold to assert. Whatever England is among the nations of the earth as a Christian country, Whatever political liberty we have, whatever light and freedom in religion, whatever purity and happiness there is in our homes, whatever protection and care for the poor, we owe it to the Protestant Reformation. The person that does not see all this is, in my humble judgment, a very blind and very ungrateful person. I freely admit that we have nothing to boast of, our open Bibles and our preached gospel, our civil and religious liberties, our abundant means of grace, all these things are sadly neglected and misused. Our misuse of privileges cries against us to heaven. But after all, we are in a far better state than we were hundreds of years ago. Forever let us thank God for the Reformation. It lighted a candle which ought never to be extinguished or allowed to grow dim. And forever let us remember that the Reformation was won for us by the blood of the martyrs, quite as much as by their preaching and praying and writing and legislation. It was forged in the fires of Oxford and Smithfield. Let me now conclude all I have said with a few pieces of plain practical advice. For one thing, I advise you to resist manfully the efforts now being made to unprotestantize England and to bring her once more into subjection. Let us not go back to ignorance, superstition, priestcraft and immorality. Let us not put the clock back and return to Egypt. Read your Bibles and be armed with scriptural arguments. A Bible-reading laity is a nation's surest defence against error. 
I have no fear for English Protestantism if the laity will only do their duty. For another thing, I charge you to beware of ritualism and to do all you can to resist it. Ritualism is the high road to Rome and the triumph of ritualism will be the restoration of popery. Resist it in little things. Resist strange dresses, sacrificial garments, the eastward position in consecrating the bread and wine, idolatrous reverence of the consecrated elements, processions, banners, incense, candles on the communion table, turning to the east, crosses at the east, and extravagant church decorations. Resist them manfully. They seem trifles, but they frequently lead to a great deal of mischief and they often end in downright popery. Resist it in great things. Oppose with might and main the attempt to reintroduce the popish mass and auricular confession in our parishes. Oppose sternly but firmly the attempt to change the Lord's Supper at your parish churches into the Romish sacrifice of the mass. Draw back from the communion in such churches and go elsewhere. The laity have a great deal of power in this matter, even without going to law. They can do a great deal if they will only attend all vestry meetings about church matters and tell the clergy their minds. My third piece of advice is this. Do not be in a hurry to leave the Church of England because many of her clergy are unfaithful. It is cheap and easy policy for churchmen to shirk trouble and run away in the hour of conflict, but it is neither manly nor Christian nor kind. It is a shortcut road out of difficulties to launch the lifeboat when the good ship is in jeopardy and to leave your comrades to sink, but it is not the line of action which becomes an Englishman. As Nelson said at Trafalgar, England expects every man to do his duty, and so does the Church of England expect every Protestant churchman to do his duty and stick by the ship. Away with this talk about secession. Away this flirting with Plymouth Brethrenism. Let us not play the enemy's game by deserting the good old fortress, so long as the articles are unchanged and the pulpit is unfettered. Let us not basely forsake our old mother in the day of her trouble. Rather, let us man the old walls, stand to our guns, nail our colours to the mast, and fight as long as we have a foot of ground to stand on. Sneaks and deserters who are always making strategical movements to the rear are the weakness of an army. Rabbit-hearted churchmen who are always bolting into holes at the slightest shadow of collision, trouble or danger are the best allies of ritualism. My fourth and last piece of advice is this. Work everyone, both publicly and privately, and work hard for the defence of Christ's truth and the maintenance of Reformation principles in the Church of England. But work together in an organised and systematic way, or else you will do very little. Men with muskets do not make an army, 
as the French found to their cost in the late Franco-German war, and evangelical churchmen without organisation will do but little in opposing ritualism. Associate, unite, organise, work together, keep together, and much may be done. Work, not least, I ask you, in union with the church association. We who are members or friends of the church association lay no claim to perfection and may have made many mistakes. But at any rate, we have done what could be done for the Church of England and have not stood still and let her be ruined without a struggle. Things look black in every direction, I freely admit, but there is no reason to despair. The day is not lost. As Napoleon said on a memorable occasion, there is yet time to win a battle. Come what will, let us not desert our position. Let us not please our enemies by spiking our guns and marching out of our fortress without a fight. Rather, let us stand to our guns like Latimer and Ridley and in God's strength show a bold front to the foe. The Church of England has done some good in days gone by and the Church is still worth preserving. If we fall in the struggle, let us fall with face to the foe and colours flying. But like the gallant sentinel of Pompeii, who would not stir when Vesuvius was in eruption, let no man leave his post. My own mind is fully made up. I say the Church of England had better perish and go to pieces than forsake the principles of the Reformation and tolerate the sacrifice of the Mass and auricular confession. But whether she is to perish or not, depends under God on the action of her members.